You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the lives of Old Testament believers. We're calling By Faith. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So years ago, I'm sitting in a classroom at Dallas Seminary, and Dr. Eugene Merrill comes in. It's the first day of class. He's handing out the syllabus, and it's a great class. It's a worthwhile class, but it was not the most exciting class. Old Testament introduction. We're going to talk through the different genres. We're going to talk about textual criticism and so forth. So when Dr. Merrill hands us out our syllabus, you start looking, I start looking through it, and I start thinking, okay, what do I need to do to get a good grade? What are the assignments? What's going to be upon me? And then he utters some magical words. He said, all right, class, I'm going to be traveling to Israel this semester, so I'm going to be gone for two weeks. And I quickly do the math. That was my favorite math in my head. That's four classes he's gone that I don't have to go to class. And then He says, but not to worry, I have recorded those four lectures, and I'm going to pass around an attendance sheet, so you're still required to be here, and you'll watch the video. Now, Old Testament introduction, while incredibly worthwhile, is not the most exciting, but putting it on video maybe lessens the excitement that would have been there. So there's this collective groan across the class when Dr. Merrill says something rather profound. They said, why is it that education, you want the absolute least for your money? He said, if if you paid for a meal plan in the cafeteria, and when they closed the cafeteria for two weeks, you'd be up in arms over not receiving what you paid for. Now, if I'm real honest, let's take a minute. How many of us have been in that moment where you feel like everybody in the conversation knows something you're not, you don't know, and you sit there and you feel uneducated, you may feel dumb, and you just think, I, I don't even know what they're talking about. You see, I think we like the fruit of learning more than we like the process of learning. And if we can buy into that thinking, I wonder if we wouldn't say that we like the fruit of faith more than growing our faith. Because so often our faith grows through times of adversity. And what I find myself so often is I want the fruit of faith. I want the fruit of having come through the adversity so that I'm on the backside, so that I'm prepared for what's next way more than I enjoy walking through the the adversity in the moment that grows my faith. See, as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to get a, a lesson on how to grow our faith. And it's not going to be an easy one. It's a story you probably have some familiarity with. I'd invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been covering this chapter. These are real people with flesh and blood like you and me, and they've had some incredible opportunities to grow their faith. Faith, taking God for who he says that he is, saying that he will do what he says he's going to do, and in that, stepping out, believing those things. Now, if you've been with us throughout the study, we've talked about what does it look like to worship the Lord appropriately? How do we do that? We've talked about how do you live in a culture that maybe uh, adores evil? How do you live righteously in a community that maybe adores evil? We've talked through things about incredible sacrifices, things that just seem inhumane that God was asking people to do, and yet the promise was to listen to me, I am God, I'm telling you what I'm going to do, but do we trust him enough to do it? 
We've seen some incredible victories. We've seen the development of individuals. If you were here with us last week, we saw the, end of the development uh, of Moses and how God was growing him. And today we see the fruit of that because God's work in Moses wasn't just for Moses, it was for the people around him. And the same is true for you and me, that the work that God wants to do in my life and in your life isn't just for us, it's for those people around us that we may step in and encourage people to say, hey, let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you what he said he's going to do. And let me tell you how he showed up in my life. Because there's one God and he doesn't change. And so as God intervenes into my life, he intervenes in your life. But as you face something and I face something, we have the opportunity to lean into that and share that with other people. And Moses has a chance to do that with our story today. We're going to pick up the story in, a, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. We just get one verse here, but we're going to go back and look at the full narrative of what happened. So we see the input, uh, the impact of generational faith. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. And we're going to talk about why that dry land, I think, is significant. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same thing that Israel did, they were drowned. Now, you may have some familiarity with the story. Some rather remarkable things happen. If you would, turn back in your copy of Scripture to Exodus chapter 14. That's where this story is recorded for us. Let's set the stage for what's been going on so that we understand where we're picking up. So the people of Israel have been in the slave system in Egypt, okay? They have populated, they've reproduced, and they are a large nation. They're a nation of about 2 million people, 600,000 men plus women plus children. And so we have this moment where God has been telling Pharaoh in Egypt, let my people go. And they didn't want to let him go. And God sends a series of plagues. And with each plague, it gets more severe more intense, and eventually Pharaoh says, send them away. We are paying too high of a price for having them here. And so he sends them away, and out of Egypt travels about 2 million people. Now think with me about those 2 million people. You will have infants and toddlers. You will have young adults. You will have the parents of the infants and toddlers. You will have grandparents. You will have great-grandparents. And based on longevity of life, you may have great-great-grandparents. So 2 million people from the little bitties to the aged leaving the country. And then we come across this story. Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? Is it because, I'm sorry, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Fear has overtaken them. Now, I want you to think with me. If you look up a couple of verses, go back to verse 5, we see some of what was leading into the When the king of Egypt had told the people, uh, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed. What is it that we've done 
We've let Israel go from serving us. Well, of course, they had an entire labor force of Israelites, a slave labor force. And because of the, because of the plagues, they sent them away. And all of a sudden, those people are gone. The plagues are over. The people are gone. And then Pharaoh has this moment. It's like, what have we done? We've just lost an entire workforce. What are we going to do? So he has a change of mind. Look with me at verse 6. So he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all of the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. Okay, so let's talk about chariots for a minute. We've got Israel, we've got two million people who are traveling, five generations, maybe six, traveling probably not very quickly. And then you've got the Egyptian war machine that's coming after them. Now, there's two kinds of chariots that would have been used. There's one that would have been the war chariot. You would have had a shield bearer there, and you would have had an archer there. The other kind of chariot, you would have had the pharaoh, the king, or the officer on. You would have had somebody driving it, and you would have had the servant to that person. What we're told in this passage is we've got 600 chariots, chosen chariots, officers, so forth, and then you have all the other chariots. We're talking about the Egyptian war machine is on the move. And so when we read that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after him. I want you to think with me about what that would have been like. Two million people moving slowly and you have the war machine coming after you. How do you know they're coming? Well, think with me. Let's just use the baseline number. that We're told 600 chosen chariots plus all the other chariots. Let's just use the number 600. Two horses per, you got 1,200 horses, 600 chariots plus all the others. I don't think they're coming quietly. I think they're trying to evoke fear, and they're screaming and yelling, and you hear the wheels turning, you hear the, uh, the chariots bouncing back and forth. Now, when we read about the fact that they are anxious, that they're nervous, that they know Egyptians are coming and they feared greatly, I would be the same. I would be the same. What is going on? And they cry out to the Lord, which is exactly what they should do. That's what we're called to do. It's in those moments of anxiety, when we feel fear, when life is pressing in on us hard, we cry out to the Lord. Now, I'd like to think that's how we move forward initially. Sometimes we get there later. But part of what happens, I think, to the Israelites is they cry out to the Lord, but it's really only a half-hearted cry. They're double-minded because look at where they go from there. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? Now, that's sarcasm. I don't know how many of you would say that you're sarcastic, but they are because up to three-fourths of the land of Egypt was used for burial grounds. I mean, there's a ton of burial ground. So when they cry out to the Lord, Lord, help us, and in the next breath, they're looking at Moses and they're grumbling and complaining. Is it because there are no graves or no empty space in Egypt for you to bury us? Why did you take us out here? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this, isn't this what we said to you? Just leave us here in Egypt. I mean, sure, we're slaves, but leave us there. Now, God had said, I'm going to take you to the promised land, so this can't be the end of the story. But as they cry out to God, they're grumbling and complaining, and they're upset, and all of this is going on. Now, if we're honest, Derek used this quote a couple of weeks ago about faith is simple, but it's not easy. Faith is simple. Trust God. Simple. 
not always easy. If you've been with us here in the series, and the third lesson of the series, we talked about Abraham and Sarah, and God had said, you're going to have a child, and now she's past childbearing years, and God shows up, and we've got this verse where the Lord is talking to Abraham, and you can go back and listen to this lesson, where the question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, we've got to ask ourselves that question. I think we would benefit if we all learned to ask ourselves this question when we find ourselves in situations like this. Because Abraham, the father of Israel, we find that he's the one started, and they begin with the idea, is anything too hard for the Lord? And generation after generation, that question needs to still be asked. And if we're real honest, we still need that question today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And over and over and over again in Scripture, the answer is no, there's absolutely nothing too hard for the Lord. But here are the Israelites, and they find themselves told, leave Egypt, and they start leaving. And next thing you know, here comes the Egyptian war machine behind them, and they find themselves afraid. I understand they cry out to the Lord, but it's a half-hearted cry because they find themselves in a position where they're also grumbling and complaining. So that's going on. In verse 13, Moses, the one we talked about last week, who has been shaped by his own faith, he's walked through adversity, he's seen God act, it's grown him and matured him, and there's a conviction to his faith now. Look at what he says, verse 13. So Moses said to the people, as they're complaining to him with their sarcasm, Moses says to the people, three instructions, Fear not and stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have to only be silent. Three commands. Fear not. You do not need to be afraid. God has said he's bringing you to the promised land. God has this. He's not caught off guard by the Egyptian army. He's not surprised by the Egyptian army. He's not fearful of the Egyptian army. He is up to the task. God has this. Number one, you do not be afraid. Number two, stand firm. Go ahead and just plant your feet right there, Israel, and know that God is fighting on your behalf. Don't need to be afraid, so don't turn and run. You just stay put and hold your ground. And number three, be silent. Stop complaining and be still because God's at work. Now, it's interesting. I wonder if, if Moses would have said that if Israel had been praising God, right? Like, God, this is your great moment. You will shine forth in this darkness. Come and bring justice and mercy and do whatever you have to do because our trust is in you. I think that if they had done that, Moses doesn't say be silent, but that wasn't what they were doing. They were grumbling and complaining, and the sarcasm was dripping off their lips, and therefore, Moses says, you know what? Just stop talking. Just stop talking. And watch what's about to happen. And I think about how many times in my life, when I find myself in that position where I think, is anything too hard for the Lord? And my, my fallback is, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, what can he really do? I mean, come on. We're, we're, uh, we're guided by the laws of physics or age or biology or whatever the situation is. And we just think, there's just no way. We need to fear not. God's got it. Stand firm. He's fighting on our behalf. And let's just be silent. God, what are you going to do? What are you going to show us? What do we need to learn in this situation? Well, look at verse 15, because here we go. So the Lord said to Moses, 
why do you cry out to me? Now, what a great question. Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. That's what we're doing. We're moving forward. So just keep moving forward. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, I got to tell you, as I think about Moses picking up his staff, and the instructions are to lift up your staff, stretch it out, the sea, that will divide the sea. And I'm thinking Moses picks up his staff, and he's like, I've lifted this staff a hundred times. It's never parted anything for me. You want me to do what? You, you want me to just, and it's going to part? How is that going to work? Now, over and over in this series, I've referred to the idea is that there can be A and B, and you and I try to reconcile A and B, and we don't ever have to reconcile A and B. Moses' job was not to part the Red Sea. Moses' job was to listen, to trust, and then to obey. What did God say? Trust that he does, will do what he says he's going to do, and then I follow through on my part. He was never told to part the Red Sea. He couldn't. You know what he could do? He could pick up his staff and he could hold it out. Now, I, personally, I think when he picked it up, I think he probably looks at it a little bit like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, all right. And then it's going to begin to part. So come back to our passage. Lift it up, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide, uh, divide it that the people of Israel may go across the sea on dry ground. Now, that's an important part. Remember what's chasing them? Chariots. You've got horses, you have wheels. It's not only that the water is going to divide, but the ground where the water was is going to immediately be dry. Okay? Verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they should go in after them. Israel, I mean, all of the Egyptian army is just going to follow you. You're going to go. You and your people are going to know what I'm doing. They have no clue. They're just going to follow you in. But look what's going to happen. I will harden their hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. I'm going to get the glory. See, this Egyptian war machine was the most powerful army in the world. Everybody looked at them. Everybody feared them. And God is saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you the end of the story. You want to know the end of the story, Israel? Here's the end of the story. I will be the one that gets the glory at the end of this over Pharaoh, his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And look at the fruit of this. Israel, you do what I call you to do, and you know the fruit of that? And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. See, they're looking around. They feel really good about themselves. Look at our power. Look at our chariots. Look at what we're coming with. Look at our gods. Look at our false system of belief. And on this day, God says, you want to know the end of the story, Israel? Here's the end of the story. I win. I win. And all of Egypt will know that I won. And the rest of the world, as they tell the story, they will all know that I won. Who's greater, God or Pharaoh? Me. I will get the glory. And in that moment, we begin to see what's going on. It defies logic. What you need to do, Moses, is this. Raise your staff. That's what I'm asking you to do. Listen, trust me, and obey. Raise the staff, watch the water part, watch the ground be dry, and I will win the day. I'm going to show up. Verse 19. 
So the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. God's leading them in this, uh, with this pillar cloud so they can follow. How do they know where to go? I mean, they're leaving Egypt. They don't have GPS, but what they have is the pillar cloud that God says, follow me. And so all of a sudden, they're, got, they're following this pillar cloud, and what we're told in this story is they get to the Red Sea. Now, if you're Israel and you're 2 million people and you're like, great, great, this is fantastic. I got an army coming behind me and I've got a body of water in front of me. What am I supposed to do? And what we see is God, who's been leading the way in this pillar cloud, goes from being in front. He's been their guide and he moves to the back of them. Now he's a wall of protection. So let's just get some visuals about what we're talking about. When you think about a nation of people and all of their belongings, we're, I mean, they've been in slavery. They've not been in a resort. They're wearied from life. And now they're going on a road trip, and it's exhausting. And if you've ever tried to do that, they got their parents, the great -grand their grandparents, their great-grandparents. They may have their children. They may have their adolescents, whatever. They're not moving quickly, and it probably isn't the best of moods. They're happy to be out of Egypt, but they are fatigued. In the meantime, you've got the army coming after you, loud, 600-plus chariots, everybody running at you. Now, I ask you, how do you feel about the fact that the Red Sea's there, the warring army is behind you, and you're stuck here? That's where they are. And all of a sudden, the pillar cloud that they've been following that has got the presence of God moves from being in front of them to the back of them. And now there's a wall of protection. I mean, there's still the body of water, but they know where to move so hasn't it been that God stopped guiding them? No, you're at the Red Sea. Here's the hint. When I part it where the ground is dry, that's where you're going to walk, right? So let me move behind you and form a wall behind you so that you know that you're safe and you're protected, okay? Verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So when we talk about, is there anything too hard for the Lord? See, you and I look and think, well, she's past childbearing years. Sarah, it's past childbearing years. She can't get pregnant, right? Well, we already learned that lesson. Here's the new one that you and I could never think through. A, that God would part the Red Sea. B, that the ground would then be dry. Here's the third one that is just ludicrous, right? Is we're told that when... The pillar cloud went behind Israel is that on this battlefield that has Israel and the Egyptian war, war force there is that darkness falls over the Egyptian army, but the Israelites can still see through ambient light. Now tell me who comes up with that idea, a battlefield that half is lit and half is dark? Nobody thinks about that. And it is so dark that the Egyptian army has to stop. They can't even do anything. They're stuck. The Israelite army is about to see something really incredible. It lit up the night without one coming near the other. So here we go, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now think with me about what that must have been like because Israel's still in the light. They can see exactly what happened. They can see exactly what happened. They watch Moses pick up that staff 
and pull it up. I'm sure there was some doubt, but he had enough faith to do what God said do, and he holds it up, and all of a sudden, here's an artist's rendering of what that might have looked like. And all of Israel sees it because they have light. And I would ask you to think what it looks like for them. Now, as you think through it, I love this picture. It's like Moses is just floating, right, through the, through the air. But I, think with me about what it might have been like. If you are coming out and you know the Egyptian uh, war machine is coming behind you, would you rather be at the front of the crowd or the back of the crowd? I'd say the front, right? Let me ask you, if when Moses holds up the, the, uh, his staff and splits the water and you have to start walking on that, would you rather be at the front of the line or the back of the line? Isn't it funny? Because I think that the people that are front of the line, they're thinking, man, we're so sure glad we're away from the Egyptian army. And they had no idea what was about to happen. Oh, now we get to walk through the Red Sea first? That's terrifying. Wherever you are, that's why we should always be in the middle, right? <laughs> and so we find ourselves in this position where they start going through this. And he holds it up. And I'm sure that as he goes to hold it up, he's, all right. And it parts. Remember? He listened, he trusted, and he obeyed. That was the only formula that was there. God never said part the Red Sea. He just said, hold up the staff. Let me do that. And he does that. And the water was divided, and the sea, uh, the, the dry land was there, verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, and they could see it all. How are you walking through that? Hey, look at that. Look at that. He said he was going to do it. Look at what he did. I've never seen this before. Yeah, nobody had ever seen this before. This is a miraculous moment. And so, of course, 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. How many? All of them. This war machine that the world feared, all of them are in the Red Sea. Everything that they have is in the Red Sea. And in the morning watch, sometime between 3 a.m. and sunrise, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, did they catch it? Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. All of a sudden, they're in the middle of the Red Sea because they chased Israel in, and all of a sudden, their wheels start to get muddied. The ground is getting wet again because we're setting the scene. Chaos is there. They start doing this, and you know the Egyptian response? We are in over our heads because we are battling God. We're not even battling the Israelites. We're battling a spiritual battle, and we are outmanned. What a moment that would have been. So now what we have is we have all of Israel on the east shore of the Red Sea. They've made it through to the other side. All of the Egyptian army is now between the walls of water. And we have this take place. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Now, I have to tell you, I do not think that Moses probably struggled at all with this one. 
hold your staff up, it's going to part. Okay. But if you can do that, and God now says, hey, see the Egyptian army in the water? Here's what you do. Put your hands up right now and watch the water cave in. Because faith begets faith, right? We have an adversity. We take a step of faith. We see God come through because we can trust him. And then we obey him. And then when he comes through and does exactly what he says he's going to do, the next time it becomes easier to obey him because he steps up, which is who he is, which is what he always does. And so this time when God says, okay, Moses, let's do this again. Put your hands out over the sea and bring that up. So the water falls back in. Look what happened. So Moses, of course, he stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned. They covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea. Catch that? Not one of them remained. Victory is complete. Victory is complete. Now, I think that there's several things that are worth us thinking through. Because I don't know what army you feel like is chasing you, and I don't know what you feel like is the Red Sea before you, but so much of our life of faith, right, is feeling like we are between the Red Sea. I mean, rocking a hard place, fine. How about between the Egyptians and the Red Sea? Because the opportunity is still there that we have to listen, and then we have to trust, and then we have to obey, because in that is where we will find our salvation. And when we do that, then the whole world knows from the beginning, God said, I'm taking you to the promised land. And we're trying to reconcile A and B and like, well, God, there's just no way you get me to the promised land. God, you forgot where the Red Sea was. You didn't know the Egyptians were going to change their mind and come after us. No, God knew all of those things. Listen, trust, and obey. And watch the world change. So all of a sudden, what we see is verse 29 but the people of Israel walked under our ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right and the left. Verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. God saved them, which is exactly what he said he was going to do. He said, I'm going to take you to the promised land, which means I'm going to save you from the Egyptians. And they're trying to figure it out what's going to happen. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what God would have wanted to do use against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord, which only evoked more worship because they had a better understanding of who God was and who they are and the insufficiencies of who they are and what God's capable of. So they feared the Lord, they worshiped him, and they believed in the Lord and it grew their faith. I love this passage. The psalmist in chapter 77 offers us these words about this account. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. You know, it, it casts a vision of this, is that God shows up and the Red Sea noticed who was there and began to split. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world and the earth trembled and shook. Are you getting the scene of this cosmic event that was going on? What a moment. We sure we're talking about this? Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. 
We don't see your footprints. We didn't actually see you, but the manifestations of who you are in your work could not be missed. We looked around and thought, oh, this has to be God. Couldn't see your footprints, but it was undoubtedly you. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, there's our accounting. Now, I ask you to consider in your own life what it looks like for us to think through I want the education without the work. I want the fruit of faith without the adversity. And it just doesn't work that way. Because it's through the adversity that we have to blindly at times listen because we've got nowhere else to go. So we listen, and then we have to trust, and then we have to obey. I've got a friend. I've shared this story before. His name's John When I got to a church and was working in my seminary years, I was 23, 24 years old, and there was this gentleman in our church named John who became a dear friend. And John knew the Lord, and and when John prayed, I thought, man, that's a good prayer. Now, let's be clear. God hears all of our prayers, but when I heard John pray, I was like, that's a good prayer. Like, he knows God in ways I don't know God, and I want to know God like him. And so I did the thing where I'm like, give me the formula. I want the formula to know how to know God the way he does. So 23, 24-year-old Lance calls John, young 80s, and said, hey, let's go to lunch. And so we go to lunch, and John and I sit down, and I said, hey, John, tell me about your life. And John says, oh, God has been faithful. I'm like, well, yeah, 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 let's get past that. Of course, I know, that's just what we say, right? God's been faithful. Tell me about your life. And John says, "Um, well, my first wife uh, died. She she took her life. I'm like, oh, this is a terrible formula already. And then I said, okay. And he goes, and my son came home from school, and he's the one who found my wife. I'm like, oh, it just gets worse. He said, and then my son grew up, and we struggled. We, we, we really battled each other. He said, my, my son chose an alternative lifestyle that I, I didn't support. He said, I was the president of the Christian Businessmen's Association of America. I didn't even know that was a thing. And he said, but I was president of it. And he goes, I thought I had to make a, a showing against my son to show that I don't condone what my son's doing. He said, so I completely cut him off. No relationship for decades with my son because I thought that I couldn't accept him. He said, and then one day I got a phone call from, uh, from my son's partner. And he said, John, I want you to know your son is lying in the hospital bed and he's going to die soon. And this is your last chance. If you want to come and reconcile and have a relationship with him, Uh, this is your one opportunity. And John said, I'm so grateful God gave me another moment to go redeem that situation and reconcile with my son. He said, I picked up, I flew to San Francisco, uh, and he said, my son took his last breath with me holding one hand and his partner holding the other hand. And uh, and I'm like, well, I I don't like that formula. Tell me how to have a closer relationship with God. Well, you know how? You live life between a Red Sea and and an army coming after you, and you just learn to listen, trust, and obey. And God gets you through the adversity. And when you get through that adversity, now you're changed. We talked about Jacob a few weeks ago walking with a limp, having learned who God was, and it changed the way he walked. But he had a daily reminder of who God was and who he was. And so for my friend John... For the fact that the way I think about education, let me pay my money and just give me my degree so I don't have to learn. To my faith that says, give me a faith that knows God intimately, that knows that he comes through, that I can trust him and depend upon him, but don't give me the adversity where I learn that. See how short-sighted that is? 
Because when we come across this passage in Chronicles that said, oh, our God, for we are powerless against the great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That is everybody in this room. That is everybody who will live in this world or who will ever hear this message. Every one of us feels like there's a great horde coming after us, whether it's the army behind you or the Red Sea in front of you. We feel overwhelming sense of inadequacy that we cannot stand up with whatever we're against. And we don't know what to do. You know the difference between the believer and the person who doesn't know Christ yet? Is the believer has their eyes on him. It's what Joe referred to as the eyes of faith. It's the idea that you recognize that when we know the Lord, it's not necessarily that I'm any less powerless, but I have the God who says, be still, stand firm, I've got this, just be silent and let me work. And we get to live in that. The rest of the world is still trying to figure out how do I move in a world that I feel powerless and I don't know what to do. If you feel like that, we'd love to tell you about the one to look to. The one who says, I sent my son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that he never earned because he never sinned. He was perfection, but he went to the cross to pay my penalty and your penalty and then paid that wage through his death. And then on day three, he walked out of the grave to offer us life. If you're here this morning, you don't know him. You feel the powerlessness. You feel the inadequacy of I don't know what to do, but you don't yet know who to look to. Look to the father who can part Red Seas who goes from being your guide in front of you to being the protector wall behind you because he's always about meeting your needs and caring for you. That's the gift of this life. And we can say, well, how big does it have to be? The disciples had this moment where they were trying to cast out a demon and it didn't go as they had planned. Matthew 17 tells us the story. The disciples come to Jesus and are like, hey, why could we not cast it out? What happened? Why didn't that work? And Jesus said, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, let's go back to this. Now, when you and I think about what a mustard seed might look like, you can think, man, I I don't nearly have the faith of a mustard seed. That must be huge. Okay. So a friend of mine went to Israel a few years ago and brought me back this little thing of mustard seeds. See them? Oh, yeah, you can't see them, right? They're that little, I I don't know. It looks like there's about 30 of them in my hand right now, and you still can't see them. So let me give you an idea of what they look like. Now, I would ask you to consider when God says, when Jesus says, if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, And you're like, oh, man, I could never have faith that big. I want you to look at how small that is. And and Jesus' words are this. Look, when you find yourself between a Red Sea and a war machine, just have enough faith the size of a mustard seed that I can do what I say I'm going to do and know that I will do it because you trust me enough. And even if I offer you something that you can't reconcile, like hold up your staff and watch me part the sea... Just do it with enough faith like that of a mustard seed that you will know that I did that for you. See, it becomes a rather remarkable gift. I don't know what your Red Sea is. I don't know what the war machine behind you is, but I bet you have one of both. And the promise is this. If you have enough faith 
that big that you can look up and say, you know what, I don't know how God's going to work this out, but I don't have to know. My calling is not to part the Red Seas of my world. My calling is to listen to what he says, to trust that he will do what he says he's going to do, and then I just go do it. And that's a radically different way to live life. And they went through adversity to get there because I'm sure that when, from the time they heard the chariots, they were terrified. And it began to set in, and then they start getting sarcastic. They cry out to God, but it's a half-hearted cry. They start saying, I don't, I don't know what to do. Let me give you a couple of things at least to think about. When life is overwhelming, and if you're not there yet, enjoy this moment because it'll get there soon. When life gets overwhelming, cry out to the Lord as you courageously and silently stand firm on him. Cry out to him, but not in a half-hearted manner. Stand firm. Be courageous. God, this is your battle. I trust you. And just stand there on him, waiting, listening, trusting, obeying what you know he has said to you. Secondly, when you feel vulnerable, know that the Lord functions both as your guide and your guard. He's moving before you to lead you, and he's protecting you from the back. Here's the great news is everywhere he leads you, he's simultaneously protecting you. Because so often our thought is, well, what if I follow him into this and it's unsafe? Here's the good news. Follow him because where he is, he is simultaneously protecting you. Everywhere you go, there's no safer place to be than following him because he simultaneously is guiding you and protecting you. And then third, when you see the Lord fight on your behalf, recognize it and then respond in awe and worship. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, and you've all made it through, and you're still like, that was crazy. We walked right through there. And now, when the Egyptian army tried to do it, all the waters fell in. Remember what God said? The people you see today, you will never see again. Trustworthy? Absolutely. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. This problem was a one-day problem, Israel, a one-day problem. That army, a one-day problem. I told you I was going to deal with it today, and I dealt with it today. And I've set you free for your next faith adventure that will build upon this one, but it will continue to move forward because adversity grows our faith. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.